We've all seen the scene in the American horror movies of young lovers parking up by the woods to awkwardly fumble around in private without the worry of parents or passers-by, but they're almost always disturbed. Occasionally, this disturbance is simply nature's calling, as the male counterpart of the two heads off to relieve himself, leaving the woman alone to impatiently wait in the darkness of the car. Other times, they are disturbed by a curious noise outside, luring the male away in search for answers. This narrative feels so real to us as so many of us attempt to seek refuge from our parents' gaze in our younger years. Finding a place to park up and smoke, hang out, have sex, or simply play music into the night. Our first cars gave us a feeling of ownership. That space is yours and yours alone. It is your home away from home. A teenager with a sudden feeling of independence will push it to its limits as they attempt to stretch their legs in this newfound world of adulthood. There's an element of safety that comes from sitting inside of a car. People will shout and scream from behind the steering wheel with confidence that would never manifest itself without the steel box they were inside. But in truth, we all know deep down that we are not safe from the outside world and our confidence is built in a naive landscape. What if, when we hid from the world to create our own little temporary utopia, we also hid ourselves away from safety? What if... As we went to seek out the darkness, the darkness found us. My name is Luke Morgie, and this urban legend is The Lovers. As one of the most retold urban legends, the scene has become something of a cliché in modern horror, with the story being told in numerous variations of several interpretations. This tale is often told around the campfire with the underlying message of a warning, to not stray too far from the safety of home when young, to stay away from situations they could find themselves endangered by. On another level, it feeds deeper into society's fears of the young being out in the big wide world, full of strangers and mystery. Perhaps this is why the story has lived on for so long and continues to do so. Because we've all been in the dark and vulnerable in our vehicles at some point in our lives, convincing ourselves of safety behind thin glass and a locked door, enclosed in such a small and exposed space. In my telling of the story, our lovers are called Claire and Joe, heading up the hilltop to look out upon their town below, away from peering eyes. Isolated and alone. The hour was growing ever closer to midnight when the film ended at the local cinema. A twisted horror, telling the story of a haunted house that Claire had convinced Joe to go see on their date. It was an unusually warm night for the latter half of September. Although Claire still emphasised her chill to nudge Joe into wrapping his arm around her as they walked back to his car to continue the intimacy they had both lacked in the passing week, forced to stay away from each other due to a mixture of school, part-time jobs and studies. They held hands tightly throughout the film and Claire rested her head on his arm when she could between the more terrifying moments of the picture. But if anything, this only added to the anticipation of each other It wasn't as if they could just head back to one of their parents' houses after all. The tension between them was finally broken, unleashing excitement and possibility when Claire finally said, I don't have to be home by a certain time. 
blurting it out the moment Joe turned on the engine of the car, as if bursting out of her in a moment of realisation that this was the end of the evening. Joe smiled and told her that he knew a beautiful view at the top of a large hill that overlooked the town if she wanted to check it out. And with enthusiasm, she nodded back. That sounds nice, she replied. I'm sure the site was going to be wonderful, but they both knew what they were looking forward to was a position to park away from peering eyes where they could be more intimate. The glow of the streets dimmed as the streetlights grew sparser. The numerous colours of the shops now left behind in a town in the distance. The grey concrete jungle had swiftly turned to the greenery of the woods as they ventured deeper into the darkness. Higher up that isolated hill as Claire rested the palm of her hand on Joe's while he changed gears both desperate to feel each other's skin. They parked up by a small opening, overlooking the town below that twinkled in a blanket of lights. But they didn't stop to appreciate it for long, instantly embracing in a passionate kiss, clambering over the knobs of the car to press their lustful bodies closer together. Chloe had already begun to undo Joe's belt of his jeans when he quickly pulled back, slumping into the driver's seat of the chair with a sigh. A night of drinking a large fizzy drink to distract himself from the more nerve-wracking moments of the film brought on an inevitable urge to relieve himself. I'll be right back, he told her with a knowing smile, slightly laughing under his breath as he swiftly exited the car, hurrying off into the darkness, continuing to undo his belt. Claire slumped back into her chair herself whilst letting out a large sigh, frustrated by the build-up's interruption as she stared through the open car door into the dark bushes he had scurried off to. She pulled down the visor and slid open the plastic sleeve to reveal the small but useful mirror before swiftly checking her hair and makeup. Once confirming it was the best she could do in a situation, she checked up her nose to make sure it was clear before flicking the plastic sleeve back over the mirror and flinging it back up to the roof. She sat patiently for a moment, tapping her fingers on her knees as she exhaled deeply, waiting for his return. But after a few minutes had passed, both frustration and concern had begun battling for her top emotion. To keep herself busy, she reached out and flicked on the radio to ignite the poppy sounds of the enthusiastic beat to bellow through the darkness around her. Only half a verse managed to make its way out before it was disturbed by the sound of a thud, mixed with a slight grunt in the distance, so faint that Claire wasn't even sure she'd heard it. She reached out and turned the volume down of the radio, listening carefully for the sounds to continue, but she was met with nothing but dead silence. Joe? She called out wishfully, now growing more concerned that such time had passed. She reached into her bag and pulled out her phone and opened her message to Joe. The last message from him reading, I'm looking forward to tonight. She typed a question mark and sent it, but to her dismay, it would not send. The signal too weak up on the hilltop. As if by reflex, she pressed the call button and lifted the phone to her ear, waiting impatiently for it to ring, full of angst and frustrated hope that this too did not connect. She leaned over the driver's seat of the car, calling his name once again into the darkness, not able to bring herself to reach too far out of the vehicle. She called his name once more, this time filled with the frustration that she had once kept at bay. She tried calling his phone once again to no avail, her body tensing up as her subconscious cloaked her fear and anger, her logical mind telling her that Joe had found a perfect opportunity to play a prank on his new girlfriend. She tried to call again, this time reaching the phone ahead of her, lifting it out of the car in an attempt to get a better signal, still refusing to allow herself to step out of the safety of the vehicle. She willed it to connect with all of her might as she watched its bright face against the black backdrop of the treetops above. 
The leaves rustled gently in the breeze, but this almost soothing sound was quickly interrupted by something that didn't seem to fit. Claire froze in her position, listening carefully to what sounded like movement in the bushes ahead. It could be the wind, she thought to herself, as she focused her senses on it, noticing its consistency seemed to move against the breeze around her. Whether it was Joe or not, she was growing afraid and impatient with the antics as she pulled her phone inside the car, slamming the door shut to lock her inside. She crawled back into the passenger seat of the car and listened carefully, consistently trying to call Joe through the device in her hand as it continued to fail. A thud bellowed from the darkness again, causing her eyes to move up into the darkness ahead as she clambered to the driver's seat once more, instantly flicking on the headlights of the car to light the dark, revealing nothing but the greenery that had already begun to turn to an autumn bronze. She studied the area cautiously, her eyes flinging from left or right to cover all ground. She flicked the phone's torchlight on and pointed out of the window to reveal the bushes to her right. But once again, there was no sign of anyone. She could hear the rough sounds of wood around her, as if something was scraping over a log. She leaned over the passenger seat and shone the light to the left of the car, but once again, nothing. Only more greenery in the cliff edge leading into the town. She turned to shine the torchlight out of the back window, struggling to hold her phone steady in her trembling fingers, but before she could reach it, she was interrupted by the sudden squeaks of something scratching at the top of her car. She slightly screamed, covering her mouth to force herself into silence as she lowered her body into a chair, desperate to stay away from the sounds as much as possible. She listened, failing to hold back her violent tears as the tapping, squeaking and scratching continued through the metal of the roof. Finally, she screamed, Go away! in her desperation. As if her voice ignited adrenaline in whatever was on the roof of the car, it began to occasionally slam loudly against the metal amongst the scratches and taps, causing the entire vehicle to shake. This was enough for Claire to decide it was time to go. She flipped in her chair, clamping her hands down on the steering wheel ahead of her and turning on the ignition. She looked around her one last time in a moment's hesitation in the desperate hope that Joe was making his way back to the car, but as she suspected, there was nobody to be seen. She put the car into first gear and pushed down onto the pedal, but the car only managed a couple of inches before she felt to pull against something, as if the car was somehow anchored to the ground. She stopped for a moment and listened over the gentle hum of the car to hear the slight crackles and gargles of a creature-like sound. Whatever was on top of the car was not normal. So once again, she slammed her feet on the accelerator as the car struggled to move forward. She managed another couple of inches, but still, it did not seem to be working. Fine, she thought to herself. I'll go backwards. She flung the gear into reverse, the embers of survival burning in the pit of her stomach as she turned her head to look out of the back window once again. In the red light, she noticed a large tree, wrapped in a thick rope that was stretched to the back of the car. She didn't understand how this had happened. The simple noises she had heard this entire time was somebody right behind her, tying a trap to the car. But she didn't have time to assess the situation too intensely. So instead, she slammed her foot down onto the pedal. As the car flung back, the rope loosening around the tree, a smile would have appeared on her face when she saw the rope drop. If she had any time to register it at all. Instead, she was interrupted by the corpse of Joe who landed on the windscreen of the car, his face smashing into the glass momentarily before rolling onto the bonnet. Claire stopped the car, screaming in horror as she flung open the door, diving to the ground outside and clambering away as fast as she could. 
She watched his lifeless body in horror as a bright light shone upon her from behind. She turned to see a car was turning to the hilltop, music blaring from the old, cheap vehicle. It instantly halted as the driver witnessed a sight ahead of them. A busted car, a beaten body and a crime victim on the floor. Claire didn't waste any time, jumping to her feet and running to the car as fast as she could, waving them down, begging them to please help her, terrified that their fear would get the better of them and would leave her stranded in this confusing and horrifying situation. The driver quickly jumped out of the vehicle, pacing towards her as the friend opened the back seat. Gently escorting her, they placed her in the car as swiftly as they could while the driver screamed for them to hurry up in his panicked state. They all got inside and slammed the doors closed, instantly locking them as the passenger began to call the police while the driver reversed them out of the hilltop. But as they left, Claire looked back at her boyfriend one last time, still trying to comprehend the horror that had just unfolded and how little it made sense to her. And that's when she saw it. The rope was tightly tied to the back of the car. It stretched and wrapped around the tree before reaching up to a large branch above that was connected to the neck of Joe. What she could hear on the roof of her car was Joe's desperate feet trying with all of his might to get her attention. And as she drove away to save herself, she had killed him. in we're on the air shh security's outside but how's my hair it's a radio station you guys hear about the beyond the shadows podcast with ryan and scott you guys into paranormal what about true crime how about ufos and cryptids we also have mad hauntings we got security no we don't we're not big enough to need it yet no we got security hey what are you guys doing get out of here Listen to the Beyond the Shadows podcast. Beyond the Shadows! The story feels familiar to us for numerous reasons from several angles. Whether it be the familiarity of the setting, characters and atmosphere due to the many iterations, homages and copies that have spread across the world as myth and legend, or even immortalised in film and television. But perhaps the most familiar aspect of this urban legend are the anxieties that the story itself evokes. It is a fear that all parents feel at some point in their time in parenthood, where our young venture out into the dangerous new world, no longer needing us by their side. By the time they are heading into their late teenage years, many are already out driving their friends and partners. No longer are they playing a few streets away, heading home when the streetlights come on. Now they have the means necessary to venture into places that would be deemed too far by foot. From the opposite side of this anxiety comes the fears of the young themselves. After many years of dreaming of what opportunities and adventures would arise with the addition of a vehicle in their world, a newfound confidence and readiness to join the adult world has sprung to the forefront of most teenagers' minds. This has been the case for decades, and yet, as always, with an excitement into the unknown, there is a dash of anxiety that seeps its way through alongside it. This story suggests that the transition into an adult may not be as smooth as first believed, 
It is a dark reminder that although you're becoming a big fish in a tank of adolescence, you're about to become a very small fish in a very large, dangerous world. The legend itself is an evolution of the far tamer, but far older urban legend, the Hookman, following the story of a young couple spending quality time down a lover's lane, only to be disturbed by a news report that plays between the songs on the radio that they use to get in the mood. The news report speaks of a serial killer that has escaped from a nearby institution and that all nearby should be on the lookout for the killer's noticeable characteristic, a hook for a hand. The young couple found that the mood was well and truly ruined by the report. The young woman now finding herself uncomfortable and unable to feel relaxed whilst out on the dark streets of the lover's lane. They both agreed to make their way home, but as the young man dropped his girlfriend off at her house, she was horrified to find the hook of the killer's hand stuck in the side of the car, piercing the metal. They had narrowly escaped the clutches of the serial killer's murderous intent. The story of the lovers is a far more graphic and horrifying tale of the hook killer. Perhaps it was competition with the ability to show more graphic contents in the movies that made the story evolve to what it became. Or perhaps the graphic nature of movies and this story were simply morphing at the same time. Products of a world that grew even harder to shock with every decade that passed. These stories, much like many of the urban legends we tell, blend into the world of cinema in many ways as the campfire stories are developed and integrated into screenplays, only to be filmed and exported to cinemas around the world. The earlier version of The Lovers, known simply as The Hook Man, appeared as early as 1947 in Dick Tracy's Dilemma, where Dick Tracy must hunt for a killer with a hook, and this has continued into horror, most notably slasher, ever since. According to film expert and critic Mark Commode, the story functions as a morality archetype on youth sexuality, which would explain the expanding of slashers involving teenagers from the 70s onwards, created by the now adults who had been part of the sexual awakening of the 60s. The latter half of the 20th century was when the story truly engulfed the excitable dark corners of society's imagination. 1980s He Knows You're Alone opens with a scene where a young couple is attacked, killed whilst parked in a car. A year later, a version of the story appeared in the collection of short horrors, Scary stories to tell in the dark. 1997's Campfire Tales opens with a segment retelling the Hook legend. And in that same year, I Know What You Did Last Summer opened with a campfire legend of the Hook killer being told, only for a real serial killer of the same design to hunt them down later. And this is all without even mentioning the design of the villain in the horror franchise, Candyman. The story itself has proven to be as unkillable as the cinematic serial killers it has inspired over the years. Featuring in several more films that I have mentioned and numerous television episodes across the board around the world, each one adding a subtle change or rewrite to the narrative, each one creating its own slightly different turn of events that unfolded down Lover's Lane. Although my story focused on the lesser known version of the tale, the premise and ideas remain ultimately the same. Identical twins in every way except the small, intricate details that separate them. But we must ask ourselves, is any of this based on truth? Whether it be the hanging boyfriend or the hooked killer, did any of this really happen? The answer is yes, although it may not be as straightforward as you may first think. This has, in fact, happened more than one occasion, and not all of them predate the legend itself.
The responses and reviews for Urban Legends have been a wonderful surprise for us here, and we're over the moon that our listeners are enjoying our content. Although it hasn't gone unnoticed that many of you have commented that you wish there was more content from us. This is why we've begun a Patreon with two tiers. For £4 a month, you can join us as a mythologist, where you can catch all episodes of Urban Legends without any of these ad breaks, allowing you to focus on the story at hand, as well as exclusive hidden episodes released the Monday after each legend, delving into similar legends not covered in the main series. For £8 a month, you can join us as an anthropologist, where you can catch all that I previously mentioned, as well as the ability to put your version of the legend forward to be read in the main series, Invitations to live Q&As with me, working in progress updates, priority voting on what legends we'll cover in the seasons to come, and even the chance to feature on one of our footnotes. The more our Patreon grows, the more content we can create, and the shorter our breaks between seasons become. So, we hope you'll join us soon. And now, back to the podcast. The first attack, although not originally linked, occurred on the 22nd of February 1946. It was around a quarter to midnight when Jimmy Hollis, aged 24, and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, aged 19, parked on a long, secluded lover's lane after spending the evening at the local cinema. They would only be there for ten minutes before a man, wearing a white cloth mask, with eyes and mouth holes cut out, would appear at Hollis's driver's side door, shining his torch through the window. Jimmy was unsure if the man was in fact simply trying to play a prank on him and so he told him that he believed he had the wrong guy. The masked man simply replied, I don't want to kill you fellow, so do what I say. Shortly after, Jimmy and Mary were ordered out of the car where Jimmy was commanded to remove his trousers. It was then the masked man would strike Jimmy across the head twice with a heavy blunt object. Mary would later confess to investigators that the crack of the metal against the bone was so loud that she had initially assumed it was a gunshot instead of the sound of a fracturing skull. She had assumed, as many of us would, that they were in the process of being robbed, and so, to stop any more violence and to hopefully save both of their lives, Mary pulled out Jimmy's wallet and showed the masked man the empty contents inside to prove that they had nothing to give. Instead, she was struck as well. Struggling to her feet, the attacker then ordered her to run, even dictating which road she should run down. Panicked and confused, Mary began to flee, but this only lasted a moment before the attacker caught up with her once more. She told the marauder that she had run because she had been told to, to which he responded that she was a liar, striking her down again and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun in a warped, cruel game of cat and mouse. She begged him to kill her, but instead was saved by an oncoming noise, presumably an oncoming car that scared the assailant off and away. After the assault, Mary fled, running half a mile until she came to a house and asked for help. Here she was able to find safety and to finally contact the police. Whilst this escape to safety was occurring, Jimmy had regained consciousness, managing to flag down a passerby in his dazed and confused state. The driver left Jimmy there while they sped off to a nearby funeral home where they called the police and within half an hour, Bowie County Sheriff WHP Bill Presley and three officers arrived at the scene of the crime. Mary was hospitalized overnight for minor head wounds, with much of her ordeal being the psychological turmoil that came with the events. 
Jimmy, on the other hand, required three months hospitalization to recover from the multiple skull fractures he had incurred. But luckily, both the victims of this Lover's Lane crime had survived. To add a spanner in the works of this investigation, Mary and Jimmy both gave conflicting reports as to the appearance of their attacker. Mary had claimed the man was wearing a white bag over his head with cutouts for the eyes and mouth, but she could see enough flesh to confirm the man was African-American. Jimmy, on the other hand, claimed the man was white, around 30 years old, but did admit that he could not distinguish his features as he had been blinded by the torchlight that shone through the glass. With one of the only corroborating factors being that the assailant was at least six foot tall. Law enforcement took a strange approach to this information. Over the next two months, they rejected Jimmy's account and badgered Mary, even going as far as to suggest that she knew the true identity of the attacker and was, in fact, covering for them. Something she denied for the rest of her life. It was only four weeks later that another Lover's Lane incident occurred. Although, as often happens of sequels, this one took a step even further than before. It was 24th of March 1946 and Richard L. Griffin, aged 29, and his new girlfriend Polly Ann Moore, aged only 17, were found dead in Griffin's sedan on a Sunday morning by a passing driver. The motorist later explained that he saw the parked car on a lover's lane named Rich Road and pulled over to check on them. At first, he'd assumed that both passengers were asleep. It was only as he edged closer that he noticed with more detail that Richard was perched between the front seat on his knees, his head resting on his crossed hands, his pockets turned inside out. Polly was found with what seemed to be less thought-out placement, simply sprawled out, face down in the back seat, although later evidence would suggest that she was in fact killed in the blanket outside of the car, only to be placed back inside. Both had died by a gunshot to the back of the head. The blood on the inside of the car, put together with the blood-soaked patch of earth outside the vehicle, strongly suggested to officers that the victims had been killed outside and placed into their positions in the vehicle once dead. The murders led to a citywide investigation by Texas and Arkansas City Police, the Department of Public Safety, Miller and Cass County Sheriff's Departments and the FBI. Whilst the panic of the public grew from house to house as the rumour mill spun out false information of sexual assault that occurred with the murder of Lovers Lane. This large-scale investigation had erupted with the local police interviewing between 50 to 60 potential witnesses within three days of the victim's discovery. With little to no information regarding the killer's motives or whereabouts, the police posted a $500 reward in an effort to gain new information in the hopes that they would finally follow a path that would lead to an arrest and conviction. But the reward brought nothing but dozens of false leads brought forward by those hoping for some extra cash. Several weeks later, on the 3rd of May 1946, another crime was committed, although this time, the killer had chosen his victims in a different situation than before. The lovers were now veering closer to middle-aged and in the comfort of their own home. Virgil Starks, aged 37, and his wife Katie Starks, aged 36, lived on a modest, reach-style house on a 500-acre farm off the highway. As he always did, Virgil clicked on his favourite weekly radio show and sat in his armchair in the living room. Katie was in the bedroom, lying on the bed to give Virgil some alone time with his show, when she heard a noise from the back of the house. She asked Virgil to turn down the radio, but by then it was too late, as two gunshots blasted into the back of his head from a closed double window, not even three feet from where he sat. Katie, surprisingly, 
didn't hear the gunshot, and instead mistook the sound for the breaking of glass, most likely due to the shattering of the window as the bullets passed through. At first she believed that Virgil had dropped something, only realising the horror of the events when she walked into the living room to see Virgil stand up, only to slump back into his chair. She ran to him, lifting his head, only now realising that he had just died in front of her. She paced to the phone with haste, but before she could dial the police, she was also shot twice in the face from the very same window. One of the bullets entered her right cheek, passing through her mouth and exiting behind her left ear. The other bullet entered just below her lip, breaking her jaw and splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. She had dropped to the floor but managed to get back onto her feet, running to get a pistol from the living room, but her view was obstructed by the gushing blood that poured from her face, blinding her. In her panic, she could hear the killer tearing their way through the screen wire of the back porch as they fought to enter the house. Thinking she was going to be killed, Katie made her way to the bedroom at the front of the house to leave a note, but before she could, she heard the horrifying sounds of the killer entering the house through the kitchen window. With her face gushing with blood and sweat, full of large open wounds, her bones shattered and splintered, and a pain that I could never fathom, Katie sprinted out, darting through several rooms of the house to keep herself at a distance from the hunter that stalked her movements. With a river of blood and segments of teeth and bone left trailing through the house, Katie finally flung open the front door and ran as fast as she could. Still barefoot and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, she made her way across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house, but frustratingly, nobody was home. With sheer determination and will, Katie continued further, at least 50 yards until she arrived at another house. She simply gasped, Virgil's dead, before collapsing in front of them. The front pages of the newspapers the following morning were full of frenzy, blasting cap-locked headlines as their bold fonts and the fear, disgust and excitement buzzed through the media and households around the country once more. After studying the scene, it was noted by the FBI that it was incredible that Katie had not bled to death with the streams of thick red blood that had stained all the floors across the house. Investigators looked further into the murders, stating that with only two bullet holes in the window, an automatic rifle must have been used. It was also declared that after killing Virgil, the murderer simply waited outside the window for Katie to arrive so he could do it again. They found three noteworthy clues as the horrifying scene of the Starks household. The first was a flashlight found in the hedge underneath the window that the couple were shot from. The second was the bloody footprints around the house and the smudged fingerprints on the surfaces. The third was the calibre of bullets used to commit the murder. Sheriff Davis publicly stated that although this murder could not necessarily be directly linked to the Phantom, a nickname given to the murderous villain that haunted the Lover's Lane for the previous months, due to the calibre of bullets being different to the previous crimes, it was not impossible that the killer was not one and the same. People nearby were brought in for questioning. Bloodhounds were brought in to help with the hunt, only to find the trail went cold before reaching the highway. That evening, many officers patrolled all known lovers' lanes in the hopes that they could prevent another attack. Very soon, more state police were called in to help with the investigation and to aid in the protection of the local civilians as the anxiety grew amongst the homes, a realisation that perhaps staying away from lovers' lanes was not going to be enough to keep you alive. Officers had detained at least 12 potential suspects, but out of them, only three stayed on for further questioning. 
with 50 officers working around the clock to solve the mysteries, including sheriffs of four counties, the FBI, and Texas Rangers. The amount of evidence and eventual progress was frustratingly slow. Amongst all of these individuals, an unofficial diagnosis was theorized by the law enforcement of sex mania due to the overt undertones of sexuality and love amongst the victims, and the fact that none of the victims had been robbed, and Katie's purse had been left on the bed, one that contained money and jewels. As expected, this sexy, sellable new hypothesis exploded in the media as the Texarkana Gazette plastered the bold headline, Sex Maniac Hunted in Murders. This caused an eruption of gossip and hearsay to explode amongst the people that lived in the vicinity of these crimes, spreading the rumour mill further into the outer towns. With the story expanding and evolving to fit several narratives, birthing a new urban legend, it seemed the murderer was able to hide amongst the noise and confusion that the rumour mill and chaos had created. Keeping track of the facts amongst the stories that people were told was a perfect way for the murderer to hide in plain sight. That was until Max Tackett, a 33-year-old Arkansas State Police officer realised that a car had been stolen on the night of one of the murders and that a previously stolen car had been found abandoned. He found a car in a car park that had reportedly been stolen and staked it out until somebody came back for it. When they did, he arrested them. 21-year-old Peggy Swinney. She told him that she had just gotten married but that her husband was away, currently in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. The man, your Swinney, once in custody, wouldn't talk. But unfortunately for him, his wife Peggy confessed in great detail that he was, in fact, the Phantom Killer. Due to the laws in 1946, Peggy couldn't be forced to testify against her husband, and because she was considered by many to be an unreliable witness, Yule was not arrested for the murder. Swinney was sent to prison as a habitual offender for car theft. There is a considerable amount of doubt in regard to the guilt of Yule Swinney, but there are several factors that, although circumstantial, are compelling. The first is that the car that Peggy Swinney was arrested for stealing was one reported missing on the night of the murders of Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore. The second, that I admit, as of course easily lied about, is that when Max finally caught Yule, he begged, please don't shoot me. When Officer Tackett replied, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars, Yule apparently replied, Mr. Don't play games with me, you want me for more than stealing cars. The third is a familiar case of Yule putting his foot in his mouth or at least according to the police. Chief Deputy Tillman Johnson claims that when he was in the police car with Yule, he asked, Mr. Johnson, what do you think they'll do to me for this? Will they give me the chair? Johnson responded with, you won't get much, maybe five or 10 years. They don't give you the electric chair for stealing cars. It was here Yule Swinney reportedly replied, Mr. Johnson, you got me for more than stealing cars. To make matters worse for him, when the lawyer told Peggy that her husband was being held for murder, before her confession, she exclaimed, how did they find out? But again, take this with a pinch of salt, as as we've seen many times, the police are not above pushing an agenda when they believe they've got their man. Whilst I do not believe that silence is necessarily a sign of guilt, especially in such shocking circumstances, it doesn't help Swinney's case that he remained silent throughout the accusations instead of pleading his innocence. Not that it would have done him much good. 
especially since Peggy had already confessed to her husband's actions, revealing very detailed information, including some information officers already knew, and some that surprisingly they did not. But this was not a clear-cut arrest, and it was by no means a smooth process, with many complications arising, throwing several spanners in the machinery and clogging its progress. Firstly, Yule's fingerprints did not match any of the latent prints on the crime scene, and secondly, Peggy Swinney recanted her confessions. The Texas Rangers and Sheriff Bill Presley were not even convinced that Swinney was the Phantom at all, believing in the strong chance that they were focusing time on a false lead. Yule Swinney himself never did confess, always denying that he was in fact the dreaded killer. But more damning than most, dozens of officers and sheriffs from both Miller County and Texas City worked tirelessly for six months to validate Peggy Swinney's stories of her and her husband's whereabouts, finally deducing that Peggy was in fact lying. To many, the case is closed with Yule Swinney. To many more, this doesn't fit the narrative enough for it to be a compelling case leaving the even more terrifying prospect that the killer was free. But then we must ask ourselves, why did they stop? Did they stop at all? Or did they just get better at it? And our decisions on it will never be anything more than opinions. As we, unfortunately, may never find the truth. Years passed, the rumours slowed, and the stories of murders of Lover's Lane became nothing more than urban legends told around campfires. But then something strange happened as if an eerie epilogue to the narrative that would serve as a cliffhanger to another sequel. It is unknown if it was a tasteless prank by somebody that lacks any sense of class or decorum, or if it was a true confession that we had accepted would never come. But on one day in 1999, an anonymous woman contacted a family member of one of the victims, apologising for what her father had done. In 2000, Another family member of another victim received the same call, once again, apologising for her father's actions. But with that, it is worth noting that Yul Swinney had no daughters. The notion of a couple down lovers' lanes being murdered has become such a part of society that almost every corner of the world has their own interpretations of it. This even became an unspoken rule amongst slasher films for many years. The couple that goes off to have sex always ends up being murdered earlier in the story. It is the one that behaves, has a close relationship with their parents, and doesn't seem to follow the rulebook of an average teen that survives, pushing the narrative that sexually active teens deserve it more than the so-called innocent. The legend started with a hook in the side of a car, inspired by the concepts of real events. This expanded with a modern audience to become a boyfriend hanging by his neck above the vehicle, adding a sense of guilt and horror to the eeriness of the previous story. Although often, you'll hear the tale told one step further still, venturing deeper into the slasher movie style. In this version of the story, a couple of teens are travelling in their car, late at night through the woods home from a date, when the young man's car suddenly conks out running on fumes for too long and shutting down in the middle of nowhere with no petrol. In the slight moments of panic and frustration, the young man looks up into the distance, noticing what looks to be a mansion-like hospital at the top of a large hill beyond the woods. After a little tiff and some firm words to each other out of fear and frustration, the boyfriend tells her to lock the doors and wait in the car whilst he walks to get help. She asks him to stay, as they always do in these stories, but as the man 
he decides to go at it alone to fix the problem. The young woman sits in the car and patiently waits for his return, as he asks her to do, trying to keep her eyes away from the strange noises that rustle through the bushes outside, telling herself it was nothing but the nocturnal animals that came out to hunt. Hours pass by and still there is no sign of her boyfriend as she sits in the car in the middle of the woods, lit only by the bright moonlight above. She's beginning to grow more and more nervous as the time continues to tick on. More time passes as the moonlight begins its journey across the sky above, creating sharp shadows of the treetops against the floor outside. The girl is beginning to doze off, finally edging to sleep until he returns. When she is awoken by a horrifying, loud bang on the roof of the car. This banging continues as she begins to scream for help. Much like our previous story, this involves a woman trapped in a vehicle with the sounds of something horrifying and unknown on the rooftop of the car. But in this version, the events are very different. Her screams are suddenly stifled by the loud calls of police sirens as several cars arrive surrounding her, their lights glistening a deep blue through the trees. She watches them in a confused state as they all slowly step out of their vehicles, horrified and amazed by something they can see that she cannot. She begins to panic as one pulls out a megaphone and shouts, Please step out of the car slowly, walk towards us, and do not at any point turn around. After a moment of coaxing her out from the police, the young woman opens the car door, flinching as she hears a slight movement of the car's roof thud. She steps out, her entire body trembling, tears pouring down her cold cheeks as she slowly edges towards the police officer who stands in front of her with their hand out. But the moment she took the officer's hand, as if suddenly feeling an urge of safety, she turns around to the car and screams. On top of the car is an escaped murderer from the distant asylum they had mistaken for a mansion or a hospital. He is jumping around with joy, her boyfriend's severed head gripped in his hands. This tale is one of three that I have told in this chapter, and yet it is still only a small handful of the numerous versions of this legend that spread itself through the zeitgeist, always reminding us that although we're no longer little kids by the time we learn to drive, we are still just as easily picked off by those that may wish to do us harm as we ever were. Which plays on the question, are we ever truly able to claim we're safe? Urban Legends is written and produced by Luke Morgie, researched by Sean Davis, in association with Morgie Pictures, music by Billy Jaff. If you like what you've heard and want to hear more, make sure to click subscribe. You can find out more about Urban Legends, including a complete written breakdown of this episode, with images, news reports, and citations listed on anything that's been said at lrmorgie.com podcast. Follow us on Twitter at ulpodcast, on Instagram at urbanlegends.podcast, or on Facebook by simply searching Urban Legends Podcast.